Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 9th, 2022, and my guest is Sridhar Ramaswamy, former head of advertising at Google and founder and CEO of Neva. Sridhar, welcome to Econ Talk. Oh, delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Neva, N-E-E-V-A, is a new search engine, and we're going to talk about that later that, that you've started. But I want to begin and, and talk about, uh, about Google. So let's start with some simple questions. How long did you work there? Yeah. Uh, 15 and a half years, very long time. And what were your responsibilities when you started and what were they when you, when you, when you left the company? That's a fun little story. I, uh, went to Google with the stated goal of, uh, wanting to write code and, uh, to be left alone. Those were my two goals. Um, I had run a pretty large group in a startup of large, I thought then of, uh, close to a hundred people. And uh, I found it very stressful. And so I wanted to do what I like doing, just write code, uh, be left alone, drink a lot of coffee, play ultimate frisbee. That's how I joined as an individual engineer. Um, you know, that lasted for about a year. And then I started uh, helping to manage teams, manage larger and larger teams, started running most of search ads, the largest business um, that Google has, ostensibly, uh, arguably the largest business ever created. Uh, towards 2009-10, and then all of advertising starting 2014. Um, so when I left, my team uh, made over $100 million in revenue and had more than 10,000 people. Whoa. Uh, was it stressful? Um, I mean, yes and no. Uh, I joke to people that I started work at uh, Google in search ads. Um, you know, the system that actually serves ads when you type in a query. And uh, so the team offered, uh, of course, great impact, but also unparalleled opportunities to make like a total fool of yourself and bring everything down, every line of code you wrote. It's like saying every sentence I write can blow up you know, the place that I'm part of. Um, and then I've also been in lots of conference calls where we are literally losing like lots of money, thousands of dollars every second. And you have to figure out how to bring systems back up. Once you have dealt with that, rest of life is like, ah, it's all good. <laughs> Uh, so Google is such an extraordinary story. Uh, it starts off as this remarkable, you could call it a utility, uh, this useful thing that is magic. Uh, that and I like to use um, my grandfather as an example. I haven't used this on the program in probably ten years, but uh, my grandfather was haunted by the phrase "and the strong man must go." Turns out it's a line from a poem by Robert Browning. Uh, the poem, I think, is called Prospice, P-R-O-S-P-I-C-E. Uh, I happen to remember that. But my grandfather didn't remember it, at least when he was older. And you're searching for it now, I can tell. And, he's, and you know, in a, a fraction of a second, that unease, that nagging anxiety of not being able to identify that phrase is over. Uh, for my grandfather, it, it haunted him for a while, and then 
so I think, I don't know if my dad told me the story or if I was there, but in, in the middle of a crowded restaurant, he shouted out, it's a browning, because he remembered. Or, and people thought, what's he talking about? Uh, <laughs> and so, so Google, in its earliest incarnation, was to help people deal with those kind of questions, things that they couldn't remember, things, things they had never known in the beginning. And it's an answer machine which I think, of course, is not as valuable as a question machine. But an answer machine is very, very useful. And somewhere along the way, people asked, well, how do we make money with this very, very powerful way of filtering the ever-growing amount of information on the web? And someone had this idea of advertising. And how did that build and what did it become? Well, I think, first of all, Google was incredibly lucky to come of age um, at just the right time. Because when a company like comes to be, determines its culture, determines its business principles. Um, you know, this is the reason why Yahoo set up a directory for search and didn't think about a search engine. Um, because it came of age at a time, just five, six years ago, but it came off age at a time, and there are not that many sites where you could say, oh, I can literally make a list of all like the stock sites in the world, and here's a page full of them. And why don't you use that if you have a question about stocks? Just navigate. It's fine. And it did work. But part of the magic of the internet about things like HTTP, um, the protocol used to serve uh, web pages, is that literally anybody could set up a site. So Google came off age at, you know, like a Cambrian explosion of content. And so this whole thing of using a directory became obsolete very quickly. Um, and of course, it's the, the brilliance of the founders um, and uh, uh, their idea of page rank, which I can roughly distill as uh, you're popular if every popular person says you're popular, which of course all of us have dealt with it at high school. It's really super annoying, but you know that's how the world works. Um, so that was their big insight into, into page rank. And so they created this amazing product that could make sense of the world. Um, but another way to think about search is that it is the ultimate expression of human curiosity. There's literally, it's also scary, by the way, and we'll talk about that in ads soon. Um, there's literally nothing that will go through many people's heads that they will not type into a search engine. You gave this example of the strong man must go, but someone else would be like, ooh, I have a headache over here. I wonder what that means. Um, and uh, so we type everything in, uh, and that's the magic of Google. Uh, it took several tries. It was not the immaculate conception, AdWords, that we think it was, uh, but there were several products created, and the current one is like the third incarnation of how search ads should work. It's based on this fundamental concept that if you're really looking for everything, you are indeed expressing uh, your intent. Uh, of wanting something, of, about, of being about to take some action. And why not interject with some commercial messages? That's the basis of the $2 trillion company and the $120 plus billion of revenue made in search ads today. How does it work? Um, this is the other magic, which is uh, for the longest time, uh, advertisers would look at a platform, say TV, um, on a newspaper, um, they would kind of have a vague idea of what kind of uh, audience and what kind of mental state people were going to be in, and they would take out ads. Okay. And um, 
the publisher, as it were, a newspaper um, or a TV program, then bore the risk of supplying a certain amount of inventory. That's how contracts were made. Um, that's how they're made even to this day. If you buy TV ads, you're basically going to say, I like this show, I like this show, I want to 30-second slots, and you, the producer, are guaranteeing for me that it's going to reach this many people. That's like, that's the handshake. AdWords turned this model on its head. He told advertisers, we have inventory. We actually don't know exactly what. We have an unending stream of queries. Why don't you, the advertiser, do the work to figure out which queries are relevant to the product that you are selling? You take out ads, and if we think the quality of your ad is good enough, we will show it. That's the arrogance of AdWords. This is like, oh, advertiser, you do the work, and if you're good enough, we will show the ad for you. Um, and charge you, is, again, and charge you a certain amount. Carry on. Yeah, that's actually a good piece of magic there. Um, unlike other advertising models um, in which you honestly cannot actually tell things like who saw your ad or what the state of their mind is. You know, the person that saw the Nike ad during the NBA game yesterday, were they in a mood to buy? Were they like anti-Nike? Did they just buy shoes? Um, the advertiser knows none of those things. In search ads, here I am coming in and saying, you know, Nike running shoes, very high intent to want to pay. The magic of AdWords, the magic of online advertising is that the core concept in it is a click. You express interest with, you as a user express interest with an action, the click, which is magical because you, you the user, took the action, the platform, the website, or the search engine, it saw the click because you clicked on an ad, but the advertiser also happened to see the click. It's one of the few events in life that is like a three-way observability. It's like three parties interacting. So the CPC model actually aligns interests. It's very powerful. Google has no interest to keep showing ads because you're not paying them on impressions. Um, you have no interest to sort of get bad clicks because you know that it's not going to lead to great conversions. And so it's the CPC model that is also incredibly powerful because you as an adver um, advertiser can buy a certain number of clicks, go see how much sales it grow, and then you know, begin to tune the system. When you Remember, as an advertiser, it's your job. When you say CPC, what does that stand for? Yeah, apologies. CPC is basically the cost per click. Cost per click. So, so yeah. just to expand your observation about previous advertising, Nike takes out ads on TV. Some number of people buy shoes. They don't know whether the people who buy the shoes saw the ad. They don't know whether if they saw the ad, it really was one of 50 things they saw. They don't know That's whether right. they heard from a friend that Nike makes good shoes. They don't know whether it's just a random idea. Uh, yep. It's a very – it's an amazing industry until the modern world that anybody paid for advertising given the lack of uh, alignment that you're talking about. In theory, and I emphasize the in theory because as a very, very casual online advertiser, like maybe three times in my life promoting something, I could tweet to see what would happen. Uh, the connection is not quite always the same for at least some, at least social media. It's true that if I see an ad for Nike and I click the ad, certainly Google knows I click the ad. But there are many things in social media where a stream of stuff is coming by. I see it. They charge, you know, they charge the, 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 
the, the company because somebody saw, I'm putting it in, in air quotes, saw the ad, it streamed by, they paid no attention to it. They're dreaming about their mortgage or their their, their family or whatever. And um, it's not quite as tight. But with Google, I think it's, it's pretty extraordinary. Well, um, the next part of the advertising story, part one, is in the context of something like search, you express pinpoint intent as a user about what you might be interested in. And then there is this ad that the advertiser has handpicked and said, I want to show this ad to Russ. He is looking for Nike running shoes. Then you, the user, take the action that is now observable both by Google and by the advertiser. The magic of online advertising comes in the next steps because Nike, the website, now knows did that ad that Ross clicked on actually lead to a conversion? Did he buy the shoes? And so this is why the CPC, the cost per click model is powerful. But the next logical step is they can back calculate what is called CPA, the cost per acquisition, the cost per action. Did you actually take action? So advertising is then reduced to on the keyword Nike running shoes, I spent, you know, $2 a click on average. 10% of these people went and actually bought shoes, which means that, you know, for 20 bucks, you're getting someone to actually take some action. And now you have detailed information about potentially the hundreds, thousands, millions of keywords on which you could be relevant. And you set in place, you know, software that's going to automatically tune these things, find new keywords, adjust bits up, adjust bits down. And so you basically got this industry that was optimizing online advertising because it was so efficient. It was so precise at saying what worked and what did not work. This is why wherever possible, people kind of want to get into this mode of what's called performance advertising. It works the same on social media, by the way. Um, you should never be paying for impressions on social media. You should always be paying for clicks on social media. And sure as heck, you can track whether they're any good or not. So we've had... Numerous, numerous people on this program worried about this model. Um, you are too. Uh, we're going to get to it to that issue in a minute. But I want to give you my story, which I've shared with lots of people on this program. I apologize to listeners, but uh, this is a chance to get someone who's a little more knowledgeable than even some of my other guests about this project. So here's my metaphor for for what Google does. Uh, I have a, uh, a broken appliance in my apartment or house, and uh, the repairman comes in, and um, he fixes my, my uh, washing machine, and I say, how much do I owe you? He says, oh, it's, it's free. I said, well, what do you mean it's free? He said, well, while I was coming in and out of your house, I took a lot of pictures of the stuff in your house because I wanted to know what you're interested in, and I sell those pictures to people who want to sell you things. And in particular, um, I noticed what newspapers you read and what magazines you subscribe to and, you know, what kind of food. I went through your refrigerator and I, I learned about what you like to eat. And by the way, I came a few other times just to check out the washing machine. It's not just a one-time thing. So I know actually quite a bit about you. And um, so the, I have two pieces of good news. First of all, it's, it's free. I'm not out of pocket. I'm not going to charge you for the repair. And secondly... Instead of seeing a bunch of ads that you're not interested in, I'm only going to show you stuff you really want. So on the surface, 
that sounds really wonderful. I have my own issues with that, which which we'll get to, but I'm more interested in yours. So what's wrong with that story? Wow, you, you sure packed in uh, uh, an enormous number of very complicated questions into, into one, one anecdote. <laughs> um, where does one start? Uh, let's start narrowly uh, with Google search. Just, just Google search, not like the rest of, you know, seeing everything, doing everything, that kind of thing. We'll get to that. That's a whole other um, pretty interesting story. The first issue is that um, search is not really about you, the searcher, anymore. It's about serving Google. It's about advertising. The entire ecosystem has turned into the instant Ross puts in a commercial query, instead of answering to human curiosity. Remember, I said search is the ultimate expression of human curiosity. The dominant search engine in this world has become much more about serving itself, serving advertisers. So that core product simply does not exist. That's, that's part one. Um, and this was the foundational observation of Neva. We wanted to create a product where the search is about the search. It's about what is good for you. It is about what is best for you. Um, and taken to a logical extreme, the ad model of Google search simply does not work. That's, that's part one. Part two, along the way, Google concluded that uh, being in advertisements everywhere, not just on Google search, was going to be really, really important for its long-term success. Uh, turns out that they were wrong, uh, and search is still the most profitable business and biggest business that is part of Google. But Google bought DoubleClick and essentially became the middleman for every ad on the planet, or at least aspires to, and definitely serves a large fraction of ads on every, every, every site. Um, what this means is that ads now fund pretty much most of the sites on the planet. Um, and outside of the context of search, this is where social media definitely comes in. At some level, being successful in ads means that you're what is called an attention merchant. Tim Wu has a whole book on this, fascinating read. I recommend that uh, all of your listeners read it. Um, he's a Columbia professor and now is like a special assistant to the Biden administration. He's written a lot about advertising and media. Um, but essentially what has happened over the, you know, to the internet over the last 15 years is that uh, every site has figured out that the more time that they can get you to spend on them, the more ads money they are going to make. Um, you had a question. Yeah, what's else. what's the name of the of the book of the author of the book? Yeah, um, so the author is uh, Tim Wu. T I M. Wu. Uh, his last name is W U. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, he's a prof he's a law professor at Columbia. The name of the book is Attention Merchants. And, and one other clarification: I don't know anything about DoubleClick. What role does it play? as the so explain that. I'm sorry, it might take a while. But go ahead. Great. No, no, no. This not this. It's fine. Um, so DoubleClick is an advertising was an advertising company. They were one of the early pioneers in online advertising. And you can think of DoubleClick as essentially making the tools that make advertising tick on the internet. Circa 2005 and 6, um, Google uh, concluded that the market for advertising outside of its properties, outside of Google search, was far, far larger than the money that it could make on Google search. Turns out, as I said, this is a terrible, uh, well, this is a bad assumption. Uh, Google search is still way bigger, but, you know, good problem to have. Um, but so Google bought this company called DoubleClick, um, and essentially DoubleClick makes product for advertisers. You are an advertiser and you want to get your ads on lots of sites, 
use DoubleClick. You're a publisher and you want to monetize your site with advertising in the best fashion, well, there's DoubleClick. Um, if you are an ad tech company and want to reach a whole bunch of publishers and advertisers, well, that's DoubleClick. Um, and so it is really almost the operating system of ads for the entire internet. Okay, so go, um, so go back. And this is when, yeah, this is when um, Google and companies like Facebook and Twitter that came along later essentially became attention merchants. Yeah, so they were all about, we need to maximize attention. What that means is that every headline you see is going to be just a little bit more provocative. There's a reason why you see conspiracy theories and anger on Facebook. You know what? It drives attention. It gets people riled up. They want to scroll. They want to click. They want to respond. They want to tell that stupid idiot that is writing all these things that they hate why he is such an idiot. Um, and so we now live in this environment where everything is about grabbing our attention. And so we have less and less agency over how we spend. So, you know, I think a lot of people talk about, and I certainly have written about, our desire to either be surrounded by opinions that are like ours, which make us give us comfort, or to be angry at opinions that, that are not like ours, and that those we're constantly being buffeted between those uh, Sulla and Charybdis, those two um, uh, forces. But what you're I always thought it was so. I you know I I choose a stream of websites. I surf things that feed my confirmation bias. What you're saying is that the content itself, of course, isn't st static. It responds to that urge. And because That's of the power right. of attention, it, it, by the way, just again, for, e for economists listening, uh, you may have heard of the hoteling model that drives things toward the center because that's where the mass of opinion and desires are, not the fringes. What the internet has done is push us all toward the edges because you're suggesting that that, that feeding either the confirmation bias or the, the paranoia, to be um, blunt about it, it keeps us fo keep us focused on a particular site, keeps us clicking through and watching and checking. Yeah, and by the way, um, in normal times, uh, or at least the time before algorithms took over what content we saw, um, things, you know, there were feedback loops. You know, of course, you hung out with the people that agreed with you. You didn't seek out people that violently disagreed with you unless you went to some protest or something. Um, but newspapers, for example, at least made a reasonable attempt at being balanced. There was a reasonable notion of truth. Um, you know, obviously, there are lots of cases where this is this is not so. But on on the whole, things were somewhat more uh, somewhat more balanced. Um, but now we are in this environment that everything is about grabbing our attention. And this is where things like the free model that you know you like gave that really nice vignette about sort of come into play. Um, we are now in a world where we you know think we're getting a bunch of free products, but in effect, we have given away all our attention. And attention equals dollars. And I think economists sometimes have trouble understanding that. Um, all of us are eminently manipulatable. The brands you're going to remember are the ones that showed you ads, whether you cared for them or not. Uh, we have run studies, for example, where we ask people about remarketing ads. Every single person, if you talk to them individually, is 100% convinced that they can never be like persuaded to buy anything. 
But if you ask in anonymous surveys whether they bought stuff that they didn't really need because of remarketing ads, 50% of people will say, absolutely, I ended up spending money on junk. So this stuff works and free isn't really free. So I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic of, of these kind of claims. Uh, I like to believe people are somewhat mm-hmm. rational and learn from their mistakes. And I say somewhat, that's the emphasis. When I was younger, I thought they were always rational, but I'm getting older, I'm getting wiser. But um, when most people make the claims you're making, my first thought is, uh, maybe you're doing. Maybe you're doing the yeah. same thing to me that we're talking about. You're trying to make me worried about big 100%. bad Google, and you run a company now that's about big bad Google. But you, you used to work there, so you actually had some idea of how manipulable manipulable people actually are. It's not just studies in some academic journal, someone trying to get tenure. I assume Google did a lot of effort to find out what effect their their uh, search answers to queries achieved. This is an important thing to remember. Um, The world cannot be easily divided into, you know, people that had evil plans and good people. It just does not work. I love it. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Okay. Um, To me, the larger observation would be that if you pick a certain set of principles by which to live, um, especially simple quantitative principles, you have to be very careful about things going violently astray because lots of things happen that are outside of your belief system. Um, Google is a large and complicated company, and so there's not a simple answer. In search ads, for example, this is the team that I told you I ran for over 10 years. Um, The focus indeed was on only show relevant ads. I used to, in fact, uh, be super annoyed with like engineers in my team that would give explanations for why some irrelevant ad would show up. And so I would have literally what I termed the stupidity rule with them, which is if you and I can agree that an ad for a particular query is stupid, we will not discuss why the ad you know, appeared. You need to help me get rid of it. I don't want to hear about your systems. I don't want to hear about your targeting logic. We will agree on common sense stupidity. Um, but uh, so search is one thing. Um, the pressure does, that search does face is this encroachment. There is a demand for more and more money, and so you end up taking more and more space. It's very relentless. Um, and the logical conclusion of search is that for a commercial query, you're going to see a page full of ads. And by the way, nothing in how antitrust is written right now or is enacted can ever do anything to stop that. It's like, hey, they created a product, they're a monopoly, they're free to do whatever we want. And we are like, oh, free market will create a new Google. And part of the reason I'm talking to you is like, ah, it's a lot harder than you. That's part <laughs> of it. Um, on, on the other part about being manipulatable, there is not a group of people that are sitting in one room thinking, how do I manipulate Russ today? No. What they're thinking is, how do I optimize conversion rates on these ads? That's all they're thinking. And if it means showing the same ad to you 30 times instead of 10, even if it happens to really rile a whole bunch of people up about creepy ads following them on the internet, you know, the principles of that group are, of course, you should show them. I have personally had surreal arguments with my team about remarketing ads where they would come and show me trade-offs. I'd be like, I want trade-offs. I want, I like everybody complains about remarketing ads to me. Okay. Come talk to me about how often you're showing them. Um, and, uh, 
people would, these are ads that chase you around the internet. So when you say, um, and so, yeah, please, you're calling yeah. it remarketing, is that the phrase? So this is when uh, I'm thinking, you know, maybe I should get a, buy a new watch. So I search for a watch yep. and I look at them. I don't like any of them. And I close my browser and I pick up my phone later and there's this weird ad in my whatever it is feed about in your news media in your feed 100 even worse even worse i buy the watch and then i get ads for watches for the next three weeks because somebody didn't tell them I, you know i want to say i bought it already it's okay but of course i can't do that because then they'd say i just lying and it reminds me of when um mci which was a very good marketing company and maybe a good phone company too but they were a really good marketing company they had an event one time, the CEO was talking, and somebody raised their hand in the Q&A period, and they said, you know, I'm sick of all the ads. You keep, you keep, you keep calling me, and you keep sending me all this mail. This is pr- primitive, prehistoric times. I keep getting these calls you know, on my phone. I'm sick of them. Where can I, what can I do to get you to stop doing that? Oh, he said, it's easy. Just switch to MCI. So obviously, the answer was, in, your, in the, what we're talking about, if it works, that's what they do. If it works, that's what they do. And the weird thing, uh, and this is where I talk about mentality and optimization principles. This team is a good team led by good people, came to me and said, Sridhar, here are some trade-offs for you. We can reduce the number of impressions, ads, that we show on these remarketing ads by some ridiculous number. I think it was 12 or 15%. Um, And if we do that, we will lose about a quarter percent of revenue. But here's the big but. We can't really see that these ads are causing any harm. So why would we want to leave 0.25% on the table? And by the way, if you don't show it, someone else is probably going to. Um, And so that's the stuff that happens. That's the thing. And by the way, it is not the case of you actually being interested in this watch. It's much more of you literally just saw something on some TV, on some, you know, in some newspaper article you are reading, and you are just curious. I'm like, I wonder what this watch looks like. You had no intention. Never crossed your mind that you are going to think about even buying it. And trust me, Ross, if you have pondered with something 200 times, you will be persuaded. This is like, this is a, this is a common fallacy of our invincibility. We are not. We are eminently manipulated. Well, I'm a little bit skeptical of that, but let's... Uh, let's put sure. let's put that to the side for now. The, 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 mm-hmm. I, what, what I want to distinguish between, uh, le, actually, let me focus on a different piece of it. Let's talk about the attention yeah. issue. Uh, and we had uh, Matthew Crawford on the program in a very provocative book he wrote called "Why We Drive," mm-hmm. and he was suggesting, you know, Google. The reason Google wants to have a car, a driverless car, is because they want to be able to get your attention when you're driving. And when you're driving, it's a little dangerous to surf the internet. But if you're in a driverless car, they can get that time too. And every minute they want your attention. Now, I understand it's hard not to give your attention. We, we all have personal examples from our internet and phone and laptop behavior that show that it's hard to sometimes say no. But is it really so bad that they want to grab my attention? Doesn't that, what, what's wrong with that? Why is that What's disturbing about it? Why, why is it a better yeah, Why is it bad for me that you want my attention? Obviously, you're giving me things that I'm interested in. On the surface, it's like the, you know, the repairman example. Um, well, first of all, there is the hidden cost of the ads economy. Um, the blunt truth of the matter 
is that search costs maybe a billion dollars to run, Facebook far, far less. Okay. Um, and uh, if this were to be a pure transactional product, um, which is again the model that uh, uh, Neva is in, like, you know, we are like, we're a subscriber search engine. Um, I think you would end up with this in a situation where maybe, you know, Google made good profit, say five, six billion dollars of revenue. Instead, the ads economy is set up so that the entirety of your attention is now mortgaged and sold to advertisers. Google makes over $120 billion, more than 50 just in the US. If you work out the math, that's a tax of $160 per living person in the country for a service that costs like pennies you know, per, per person per year. So that's the other. Um, and so there's the economic cost. Yeah, that's the other point. It's just important to emphasize this, that it's free in the sense that it's there's no out of pocket, but the products you buy are more expensive than they otherwise would be because to get people's attention. Every, now, every, that's always been a claim against advertising that it's just a, a you know wasted cost. It, there's a value to it. It helps you find stuff. So the real question, which is unanswerable, but we could maybe make a guess at is again, is it pushing you toward how things? much is reasonable? Yeah, how, and 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 is it pushing you toward things that you that you actually do want, or is it trying to convince you to do things that you not maybe don't want so much, but you don't know better because you never see the other ads that might be the products that you That's really correct. do want? That that to me is is the Sorry. real uh, the, the the concern. Um, and there's a separate part which we haven't talked about, which I think everybody under starting to understand that as the repairman leaves my house, he takes away the newspaper that I been reading most of the time and he puts a different one in its place with different articles because he has a political agenda which i'm totally unaware of i think i'm reading the same newspaper i always read but actually he's changed the articles and i'm going to vote differently and my neighbor is doing that and it's really not a good thing so that piece of it as to what you actually see not we're not you know not product consumption which you know Perhaps ironically, is actually not that important. You know, that you buy the wrong pair of shoes. It is. I actually, I disagree <laughs> with this very strongly. Okay, give me both for the following yeah, reason. Yeah, I disagree with this strongly because at the end of the day, you know something, Ross? It's not that hard for you to find out what products are great for you. Okay, the this is the, remember Craigslist? Yeah, sure. Remember? Sure. It's still it's still free. <laughs> um, technology. Me makes it really possible for us to create scaled products that can serve the world relatively inexpensively. It's almost as though we've said that every water supplier, every electricity supplier, every supplier of every utility to all of us needs to be owned by a monopoly that needs to be subject to no rules whatsoever about how much money they make and how much they can charge. And we are like, oh, um, because somehow it is like it at one level it is free it's fine for them to do all of uh, all of these things um my take is that much of the benefits of scale that in technology that could have come to larger society have gone to individual companies because of the ads model well because they are the ones that reap the profit of these models. well there's also the fact that and I've spent time in Silicon Valley and Palo Alto many summers, as listeners know, and I've met really extraordinarily smart people, and they spend their day doing what you're talking about, which um, – Adds optimization. Yeah, which makes me a little sad sometimes um, because maybe they could be doing something more productive in some dimension. It, you have to have a discussion of what productive means, and but I, I think the general point is, is something to be concerned about. 
Um, now, you've started a competitor, partly based on the, the concerns that you're talking about. The weird part about it, and of course, you know, you can argue about whether, you know, you, you made a parody a little, I could tell you're a little bit skeptical that the free market will provide an alternative, but you are, the, you're, the free market is providing an alternative. It's going to be hard to do, obviously. And there are many other, uh, you know, I have on my phone, I have Brave. I have DuckDuckGo. Yeah. I now have Neva yeah. because I'm doing this interview. I subscribed. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to report. I'll, I'm going to give you a year. And in fact, you may give, I, you. I may end up giving you more than a year because as you know, many subscriptions endure until your credit card uh, expires because that's when you really start that's to true. notice. They say, oh, you've got the wrong credit card. And that's then you realize, I mean, I've been subscribing to that for three years. But anyway, so you have a subscription model. And what I'm curious, the first question, obviously, I, I'm going to have two questions for you. Before I yeah. do that, I, I just want to reference um, the Econ Talk episode with Paul Buckheit, where, uh, who's the uh, leader of the team at, at Google that developed Gmail. Uh, it's a long time ago, this episode. And I asked him what was protecting me from surveillance within Google. And he said, I, this is my memory of it. It might not be fair to Paul. And I, we can go back and check the episode. We didn't do, I don't think we did verbal, really good transcripts then. But Paul said, well, we have a motto, don't be evil. And I thought, mm, that's a weak read. It's really not. We just subsequently been removed from the company's models. But please go on. <laughs> oh, that's a comfort. Uh, or not. I mean, I, to me, it didn't. I really, it was when I kind of liked it's more honest. Uh, they're a lot, yeah, their motto is we make money, which again, usually is a good thing, but maybe not in this case. Um, but the two questions, obviously, as the founder of a new company, uh, just about the product, then we'll talk about the process. You have competitors already that are free, uh, that, that promise to, to not follow you around the way Google does. Uh, and the second is, is that, you know, most people, aren't like you and me. They're not really worried about this. They kind of love it. And they're oblivious to all the things you're talking about. And the idea of paying 60 bucks a year for something that they can get for free from Google, why would I do that? So, so tell me those two questions. You're free competitors and then you're, you're expensive relative to both them and Google in, in the in out-of-pocket, in the out-of-pocket sense. That's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, first of all, yes, there are competitors, but, you know, outside of Google and Bing, you're the only company that is actually a product company focused on search. We started using Bing's APIs, but we have since um, uh, made very large investments in uh, in all of the infrastructure needed to create a better product. Um, and that pays off in a big way in terms of the innovations that we can create. You can index your personal data. None of the others um, can do that. It's an optional thing. But if you're like, hey, a bunch of my life sits on Google Drive, on Dropbox, on other applications, um, you can use Neva to search over those as well. Um, and, uh, um, and we are running infrastructure that, uh, is now at fairly massive scale. And that lets us create better products for programming queries, for product queries. Um, we're just able to innovate a whole lot more, um, rather than slap like a privacy layer on top of existing products, like some of the, um, others have done. Uh, so we are one of the few companies that are, um, that is focused on truly creating a better uh, search experience. Um, that distinguishes us quite a bit. Uh, and then in um, biggest hurdle that we face, by the way, is uh, not the point of converting uh, Neva users to paid subscribers, isn't really getting the word out there, isn't raising awareness for people to even try. At this point, we have a product um, that is very, very good. 
but both because many browser doors are locked, like for example, with Safari or with Chrome, where we can get a default placement, or it is incredibly hard to have any mechanism by which you as a consumer has an option. By the way, there's no way for you to change your default search on Safari in iOS or on, uh, uh, or on your Mac. It's things like that. It is getting people to even try Neva. That's the biggest competitive hurdle that we face. We have very healthy conversion rates. Once people um, use the product, they get the value from the product and are using it day in and day out, our conversion from the pre-tier to the paid tier is incredibly healthy. That is actually not something that I'm concerned about. And the reason for that is once they use the product, once all of the tracking goes away, once all of these creepy ads disappear, because we also prevent tracking as a core part of the value proposition, people suddenly realize, oh, having a service that just works for me, but I don't have to worry about what I'm clicking on is a big deal. It's more what we call the top of the funnel. Um, that's a bigger issue for us. And this is where I will say again, competition is not a click away. That's like a myth that is perpetuated by incumbents. Say that again, competition is what? Well, so the typical answer that you will get from tech companies, whether it's a Facebook or a, or a Google, is, oh, competition is just a click of it. Anyone can click on any other site and go do it. But you know what? People are ingrained with their habits. People search by opening up a new tab and putting in a search query. And if you cannot become a search provider there, you might as well not exist. Yeah, all right. You cannot break these habits. And that's what I mean by competition is not a click away. Um, and the free market is most definitely not working when it comes to search. By the way, um, yes, DuckDuckGo is a 12-year-old company that has made slow inroads, but compared to, say, other areas, whether it is enterprise software, whether it is cloud software, or whether it's crypto software companies, the amount of actual competition in ad tech in search is minimal. And to a certain extent, I'm like the weirdo um, of having enormous experience and at Google and also willing to take on a challenge that is as hard and as daunting as that of building a new search engine. This is not the kind of thing that your 23-year-old entrepreneur is dreaming of because they know <laughs> that they're not going to get any funding whatsoever if they propose an idea like this. How, how many employees do you have? Uh, we have about 75 people. And do you have funding? Uh, so we have funding from both Greylock and uh, Sequoia, two of the premier venture firms in the Valley. Sequoia funded, uh, funded Google. Uh, we are one of the few companies that have significant venture funding. So one question I have, and I have this for DuckDuckGo as well, you know, these small right now, perhaps larger eventually, but right now small competitors to Google, they promise they won't track you, they won't sell your information. Neva gives you a little scorecard in the corner of how many sites have, have uh, been keeping an eye on you that they have stopped, which um, is kind of fun. I kind of like it. But yeah. you have, as you mentioned before, an option where I can, I can register. I can uh, give you my name and, and email, and it will allow the power of Neva to search other aspects of my, my life, my Dropbox right. and so on. But why should I trust you? Like, so if I'm a paranoid person, which I'm a little bit, not much, but a little bit, and I'm using you as I am, partly because I just don't like this, the Google dominance, and I, and I want to contribute yep. to some competition. How do, I, how do I know you're not just Google, but pretending to be something else? I mean, this comes to, it trust is earned. It cannot be asked for. 
uh, and it has to be earned. And I, I see trust as an ongoing relationship. It's not a, you know, one promise and therefore you trust us. Uh, certainly it is in uh, the, uh, like the ethos and DNA of the product that we are considering, we are all, uh, that we are building. Uh, and we are also very open about how we are not going to make money. Uh, we don't make money by taking your data and giving it to anyone. We have no data products. We have nothing else in terms of Neva. We have a consumer subscription search engine with, with a, with, with a freemium model. That's what, that's what we do. And really trust is earned over, uh, you know, over time. And we're very open, uh, about what we do and what we don't do. I think it's the, what we don't do, um, have any other lines of business involving any kind of data. That I think is the um, is the guarantee. We're also working on technological solutions. Um, by the way, for things like search, um, there is some early research here that will let us run search um, sort of in a true end-to-end encrypted fashion. Meaning that we will be able to search on behalf of you over your data in such a way that we cannot see the data. If it sounds magical, it kind of is. It's early research, <laughs> so we are thinking about things like that where we can provide services for you without you having to worry that we have the actual content of things like your email. Let's talk about search in a little bit of a philosophical way. I I love what you said earlier about human curiosity. And, um, you know, I I happen to come from, I gave a talk earlier today, and I often marvel at how we talked about this in an episode with Lauren Buckman um, called Make to Know. You know, often we learn about, as artists, we learn about what we want to make by doing it, not with a, we don't have a plan. You know, I, I might have an outline for my talk, but I figure out what I'm going to say sort of when I'm saying it. And thinking is clearly yeah. a combination of thinking about things in the calm of your armchair, but also talking because we're human, we're human beings. And I think we have a romantic idea about search a little bit, uh, which is, you know, I'm curious about things. I want to find something out. Uh, I gave the answer to who wrote earlier. We talked about who wrote the line, the strong man must go. But a lot of search isn't isn't about finding an answer. It's exploring. And when I say, if I want, if I want to know the capital of France, I want to know Paris in a nano of a nano of a nanosecond. But if I want to learn more about French culture, I don't want an answer. I want to go swimming. I want to go sailing. I want to go, uh, you know, not navigating even. I want to just explore. I set out. I'm not sure where I'm going. And this actually, I'm using all these water metaphors. We, we call it surfing, right? That, that's where the, it's interesting. That's, I'm not sure it's the best metaphor, but that's the one we've come to use for this kind of like, and then we even say things like, oh, when you go down a rabbit hole, like going down a rabbit hole yep. is a horrible thing. Actually, it's what a lot of us, it's a fun we thing. long for it. That's, I want to find a rabbit hole to, yeah. to spend some time in. That's what makes me, my, my, my mind sing my heart sing so i think what this means for search is that there's no right answer to what kind of search serves me well it's kind of a it's a very deep philosophical question certainly i don't want my search query to lead to things that are bad for me or to be manipulated by someone who wants to sell me something but in what sense is there such a thing as quote organic you you call it organic search in, in your in your 
in your uh, documentation or, or ads about your product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Obviously, there's yeah. a difference between search where I'm being told what I'm looking for is something I don't really want versus something that's really organic. How do you get there from here? What's going to be the underpinning of of a better search engine? Not the ad part, just the yeah. the finding out, the exploring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a great question. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking uh, thinking about this, talking about it. This is one of the things that genuinely excites us. Uh, I think you made the important distinction uh, clear, the difference between a an ad-supported search engine and uh, everybody that is out there, uh, uh, Google, Bing, but definitely Duck and Ray and you, they're all ad-supported. Uh, and uh, that that is an important distinguishing factor where we start with the premise that we only serve you results that, in our opinion, um, are the right ones for this query. But beyond that, um, how do we facilitate uh, exploration? How do we facilitate alternate uh, uh, interpretations? I'll give you a funny example. Uh, this is actually uh, my son uh, uh, came up with uh, this particular one. It's a genuine query that he had. The query is uh, find Swift five, the number five. Um, it turns out that, say that uh, again. This is all say kinds, that again. Find yeah, what? The, yeah, the the word find f i n d, the word Swift, um, like the bird s w i f t, and then the number five. Okay. And it turns out that Swift, as you know, is a banking code. Uh, is a banking system. Yes, it is. Um, find Swift. It could mean that. Swift 5 is also the name of a laptop that the company Acer produces. And it turns out that the thing that he was really looking for was documentation for the function find in the fifth version of the Swift programming language that Apple had created. Um, And so there are lots of things in life where there's this kind of ambiguity. Um, And we talk about sort of what are labels we can attach to different pages where we can tell you, hey, is this really the area that you are looking for? How do we also make it easy for you to do what we call go sideways? Um, we have a neat feature on the Neva iOS app. We call it, uh, um, I think it was called Neva Scope. It was called the cheat sheet to begin with. Where basically you can press the Neva icon on a page and we'll show you everything that is around that page um, in, in web distance. So you not only see one page, but you see other things that are similar to that page, not from the viewpoint of, typing in the same search query, but more from the viewpoint of what is semantically close. So there are lots of ways of navigation. You can also imagine situations in which, um, you know, you take a set of search queries and then you say, hey, here are some links that you might be interested in because you tried all of these things. So I think the um, jury is still out there uh, in terms of what can be done with search. Uh, the deep learning models are another very fascinating angle. They have the power to assimilate billions upon billions of documents and generate useful summaries. So who knows? We might actually be producing content that doesn't even exist, where search is more of a conversation between you and this, and this oracular model that you know has digested much of the internet that is there and is synthesizing new information for you. So the field is very young. If anything, I wish there were more competition. Because I like with 10x the amount of resources that we have, um, I think uh, we would be producing many, many more interesting projects than what we are able to do uh, right now. And to me, that's the magic that simply does not happen in 
today's head dominated environment where there's like one player and no one else really can break in. So uh, let's go back to your son's query of find Swift five. So many, many times, some, some of those answers, which he wasn't looking for might intrigue him. Obviously that's part of this exploration thing we're talking about. In this case, he actually did have a, a destination he wanted to head to, but then he realized, oh, I'm going to go over here That's first. Right. Now, <laughs> one way to think about organizing that search is that you'd see all of those on the first page. And yep. it would give me a chance yep. as the user to say, oh, no, 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 no. I meant the Swift That's programming right. language, not the bank That's code. Right. Um, I think what you're suggesting happens now is that when people enter the word Swift – into say Google search engine, they um, people who were willing to pay for Swift would dominate at least the first page. Some of those things would I know that they were paid for in Google on today, like on Twitter. Oh, on Twitter, when yeah. I'm really good on Twitter, where I see something and I go like, mm, "Those aren't my friends," and I look down and it says, "Yeah, it's promoted." But on Google, what yeah. do I see? In the old days of Google, you'd see the stuff on the side, and I go, oh, I'm going to ignore that. I never looked at it ever. But now, of course, like you were saying, there's that thirst for profit. It's now just mixed all in. Oh, it's you, so exciting. <laughs> you do see the label, though. Um, you have to give uh, Google credit on that. You see the labels for ads. You can tell. Um, but it is important to understand that it is still attention. It is still you have to scroll past. Uh, by the way, is it, I use um, uh Twitter exclusively on desktop. Like I am, I have all kinds of subscriptions, but I still prefer desktop and uh, you know a trusty ad blocker um, because I find that even the services that I pay money to, maybe that's a question for me, um, uh, you know, fill themselves up with ads, which is something that we for sure never want to do because there's no limit to that. I find uh, sites like the New York Times or even the Wall Street Journal to be unpleasant experiences on my phone, even though I shell out 15, 20 bucks every month. To both of them, they're a lot nicer on desktop. Same for Twitter. And that's because you can, on, on your phone, it's harder to block the ads? Yeah. Why? Because I use their app. Oh. So it's their, I use their app, and the apps come with ads built right. in. No way to get rid of them. And- I use the app because I'm like, this will be a more pleasant experience. No, it's just unpleasant. Yeah, I have that too because you're reading an article and you think, oh my gosh, it's over. Oh no, it's just a long ad. It'll keep going. It's really a, it's it's an ad take, that takes up sort of the whole screen. And it's a brutal, um, yeah. it's a brutal um, throat clearing for the author. You know, the idea that you know I've written this brilliant uh, feature article or uh, profile of someone interesting, and then. You get a few hundred words in, it's like, and now a note from our sponsor. Whoa, 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 whoa. Exactly. This beautiful piece. And of course, it'll change the way people write those pieces because they'll know to, they have to anticipate those in theory, or maybe they don't. Maybe you don't want it to look like a little stopping point for the ad because then maybe they will think it's over. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, you are, uh, you're skeptical about, about competition in this, in this area. And even I, who I'm one of the more, I'd say ideological fans of competition. I'm a little bit uneasy about it here and have been growing uneasy about it, as I'm sure listeners have noticed. There are some hopeful signs on the horizon uh, short of antitrust. Antitrust, we recently had an episode with Mike Bunger where we talked about how poorly designed current antitrust law is for these kind of issues. It's really, it's 
interesting. But it's interpretations, right? The consumer welfare standard isn't law. It's it's a it's an ad hoc interpretation that's broadly oh, gotten adopted. And it's not it's not even um, I wouldn't say the history of antitrust is really a, a very good history of consumer first. But but anyway, you're worried. I'm I'm a little worried. You're more worried than I am. You have now taken a big personal stake. You've got a lot of skin in the game in, in this this worry. Right. Now I see some encouraging signs. Um, Apple has has shown some interest in privacy relative to its competitors. Tried to make it a, a comparative advantage in terms of identifying their product. Um, there are places like there are search engines like yours. I'm sure places like Greylock and Sequoia, the venture capital firms, are funding. I hope they're funding some alternative social media uh, efforts. I know there's a, as of three years ago, when I used to go to the Bay Area, uh, there were all these wonderful, innovative attempts to be alternatives to the current social media. Maybe they're going to be dead in the water. But do you have any optimism about how this might turn out? Um, or is it, uh, are you, do you feel like you're uh, Don Quixote? Um, tilting at windmills, using someone else's money, that's just helpful, but to fund the, the lance and the horse and the rations. But Well, just just on the last part, I put up my money uh, for the first round of NEVA. I invested as much as Greylock and Sequoia, so there's more than, uh, you know, I'm just not I'm just not talking. Uh, I care about the outcome, and I'm personally invested yeah. in a very real way, in addition to, in addition to my time. Um, I actually do think that uh, listening to what you're saying, you're like, wait, don't worry about competition. There is a $2 trillion company that is out chasing other $2 trillion companies to rescue us. Listen to yourself. Um, and somehow we don't think that that's the government's job um, to be doing this. You know? So that's, that's like my first point. Um, and the second point is that I think things like consumer welfare standard, which, by the way, you know, when even Bork wrote about consumer welfare, he meant it from like an economic perspective of producers and consumers and not really that of like you and me. I think the fact of the matter is that current antitrust law largely does not apply to ad-supported companies. Uh, and I think this is where we need to make sure that law and regulation are keeping up with uh, the challenges of modern times. Uh, I joke to people that my, my friend Kent Walker's team, Kent is uh, uh, GC, uh, head of legal at Google. He has more lawyers um, than there are employees in the FTC. That's the world that we're living today. Um, and so, you know, our government, which technically is supposed to look out for all of us, is woefully underprepared and underinvested to take on these behemoths of corporations, uh, which in my mind are stifling competition. There's a lot more that can happen. But most, uh, you know, startup founders are not like me. They're, they are not as determined or no. not as stupid uh, to take on challenges like this. People go where there is opportunity. There's a reason why you're seeing so many people in blockchain, because they're like, oh, no Google, no Facebook, let's go. Um, and uh, so I think we need to bring that innovative mindset back to how we think about computing. There is so much more that can be done. Yeah, for better or for worse, I think a lot of founders of startups, I mean, their dream is to be bought by Google. It's not to, not to defeat Google, uh, for sure. Now, I, I want to emphasize that word, um, technically in uh in your sentence technically government should be looking out for us in my experience it's a mixed bag um we don't want to historically in my view it's not uh -huh. unanimously held but many people believe that antitrust is often used to protect and government regulation is often used to protect 
incumbents from competitors by putting lots of regulation on them. And all of a sudden, a new startup comes along and they have no chance because they don't have that law firm, internal law firm that's one of the largest in the country uh, already inside Google to comply with all these regulations. GDPR is an example. What's an example? GDPR, the the European regulation. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. I, I think the challenge is we could imagine perhaps some antitrust regulation that might make the world a better place. It's not clear we're going to get it. And I um, I salute your efforts. Um, and uh, I'll be fascinated to see not only if you're successful, but I'll be even more interested to see how your product changes. Because I think one of your themes in the writing you've done on this is that innovation is important. You've, you hinted at it. You alluded to it. You mentioned it uh, when, you, when you talked about this. Um, and it would be innovation that would not make more money for advertisers, uh, revenue coming from advertisers, but would innovate by making my experience as a user more pleasant. That's a great idea. And uh, I hope that's, I'll be interested to see how that, how that proceeds in the next few months while my subscription is still active. Thank you, Ross. My guest today has been Sridhar Ramaswamy. His company is Neva. Sridhar, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. Please check us out, neva.com, N-E-E-V-A.com. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.